amazing. Thank you. So, yeah, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, it is great to be with you today again as we continue our study of the foundations of the faith. And we've really been learning a lot over the last few weeks. It's interesting. Um, Rob mentioned a few weeks ago that he felt like he was Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible and uh, in having to describe the character and attributes of God in a limited time. I definitely know what he's saying is every teaching we've had so far from an intro to the Bible, how to know the Bible, the character of God, the person of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and last week's salvation, all of these have been amazing blockbuster teachings. Way more better than any Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. And these are just the foundations of the faith. So only a small t portion on each topic. So I was just wondering if the elders and Kevin would allow me, just like the latest blockbuster movies, to have three hours on this portion of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so anyway, today I am teaching on the Holy Spirit as a person and in his ministry on this earth, and in particular, the life of a believer. What I will not be covering in detail today is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because that will actually be covered at a later date. So let us pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time to come together to share your word. I am, um, as I stand here, I feel inadequate to truly speak about how great you are, Holy Spirit. But I know that you will just use me as your vessel. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that I will speak your truth and your words. And let every word I speak be edifying to the body of Christ, to the church. Let it be uplifting and let it just be powerful through your power, not my own. So I thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I want to start by saying that the Holy Spirit is God. And the Bible identifies him as being part of the Trinity. We can see this from the beginning of creation. In Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we can see that the Holy Spirit is called God. A few verses later in the same chapter, in verse 26, we see the first mention of the Trinity in the Bible, and it reads, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We see here the plurality of the Trinity. And although it doesn't mention the three persons of the Trinity directly, we can clearly see that this is referring to more than one. However, one verse later in verse 27, we see that there is only one God. For it says, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, you might be wondering then, was the Holy Spirit involved in creation? We can see that from the Gospel of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that the Word became flesh. So we recognize this Word as being Jesus. And in verse 3 and 4 of John 1, it says... All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here we can see that Jesus being involved in the creation of the earth and the life of men. But what about the Holy Spirit? The Hebrew word 
for spirit is often translated as wind or breath. And we see in Psalm 33, verse 6, that it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. In Job 26, verse 13, we see that Job declares, By his spirit he adorned the heavens. And in chapter 33, verse 4, Job declares, The spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So from these verses mentioned, we can see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in creation as three distinct persons, but as one God being the Trinity. Now, just one other thing to mention on the Holy Spirit being involved in creation. A few weeks back, Kofi spoke on the um, person of Jesus Christ, and he mentioned about church history, and I love church history, and I love the books of church history. It's so great. But um, he mentioned about how councils were formed to declare that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Another issue that arose at that time was if the Holy Spirit was God. And, is, and man, you know, sometimes thinks he's wiser than God for some reason. Some of them declared the Holy Spirit was not God. So basically, a group of believers came together and they formed the uh, Nicaea Council. And we have the Nicene Creed that was came out of that. And it is a creed that has stood the test of time, and it is actually the most recited Christian creed of all time. And in the third article of the Nicene Creed, it states the following, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So here we can see the declaration of the Holy Spirit being the giver of life, but also being part of the Trinity. Now, I know that the Trinity is difficult to fully understand, and it is a mystery that Paul even confirms. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So here we see that the Trinity is a mystery that we will not fully understand here on this earth. And people have tried to explain the Trinity in many ways. And uh, I was recently reading the book Living Waters by Chuck Smith, which is upon, about the Holy Spirit. And he said, some people have suggested that the Trinity is a mathematical absurdity. One plus one plus one, they point out, equals three. But this proves nothing, because one times one times one equals one. <laughs> you can't disprove the Godhead mathematically. I actually love the second part of his maths equation, though, because I think it's a simple way of trying to understand the Trinity a bit better. As we can see, there are three distinct persons, but they equal one God. Now, within the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in essence, yet they have different functions. So when we look at those functions, we see God the Father is from whom all revelation proceeds, the one who foreknew our salvation and demonstrated his love for us by giving his only Son. God the Son 
the incarnated God who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin and now intercedes and mediates between the Father and man. And God the Spirit indwells the believer and works to sanctify the believer through the illumination of the word of God. Now, just a few more scriptures to show that the Holy Spirit is, is God. In Isaiah 40, 13 to 14, we see proof of his omniscience, that he is all-knowing. It reads, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or has his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see, because the Spirit of God is all-knowing, he cannot be taught. In Psalm 139, verse 7, a, a well-known verse, it talks of the omnipresence of the Spirit. Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? We see evidence of the Holy Spirit being eternal in Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And finally, in, in John 16, verse 13, we see that the Spirit is truth, just as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It reads, however, when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So hopefully now that we've established that the Holy Spirit is God, we also need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person. We use pronouns to describe a person. And if we look at John verse uh, chapter 14, verse 17, and we look at how many times the pronoun he or him is used. It says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we clearly recognize here the Holy Spirit as a person. And because he's not just a force or an essence, as some people sometimes believe, because he is a person, we can have a relationship with him. Now, when you think of a person, this also means we can say they have a personality. So let's look at some of these attributes of his personality. Firstly, intellect. He possesses the ability to know and understand reality. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11 says, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And in verse 13 of that same chapter, it says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual we also see in Romans 8, verse 27, that the Holy Spirit has a mind. For it says, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we can see that the Holy Spirit as a person possesses intellect. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has emotion. We read in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In Isaiah 63, 10, it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. So we can see from these verses that the Holy Spirit can be grieved and upset. On the other hand, though, we read in Romans 15, verse 30, about the love of the Holy Spirit. It says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the love, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. It is very rare that we ever hear sermons on the Holy Spirit. We don't hear many of them. But yet here they are written in the Bible. Finally, the third emotion of the Spirit is volition or will. We see regarding the distribution of the gifts to the believers in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. It says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distri distributing to each one individually as he wills. At times, the Holy Spirit demonstrates his will by stopping people going to certain areas, such as in Acts 16, verse 6 to 7. And please forgive my pronunciation of these places. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. The Holy Spirit also uses volition to choose people. We see this in Acts verse 13, verse 2, which says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we can see that the Holy Spirit is a person as well as being God. Now, let's look at what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Firstly, in the world today. We have established that the Holy Spirit was active in creation already. We can see in Luke Chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit was active in the virgin birth of Jesus, our Messiah. It reads, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit was involved in the birth of Jesus. Kevin spoke last week on the subject of salvation, and although I haven't yet been able to listen to the message, I'm sure he mentioned about how the Holy Spirit was active in salvation. We can see all the way back in Genesis how the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Genesis 6 verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. We see that same conviction from the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 verse 8 to 11. It says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they, did not, they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When we read what Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 14 verse 12, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, when I think about this verse, 
What greater things could we do than Jesus? He healed the blind. He healed the deaf, the lame. He rose people from the dead. He forgave sins. He fed the multitudes. He laid his own life down for us. And yet we can do greater things than him who believe in him. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the apostles did some of those miracles. And even today, the Lord performs miracles if he so chooses. But the greatest thing that we can do because of the Holy Spirit who came upon us after Jesus went to be with his father is to speak the gospel and see true healing of the hearts of people and true repentance of people being brought into the eternal kingdom of God. That is what is the greater things are. The greatest gift that anybody can ever receive from God is to be forgiven of their sins and to have the promise of eternal life with their Savior. We also see that the Holy Spirit who is the one who acknowledges that Jesus is Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, it reads, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Another area that we see the Holy Spirit working today is to restrain evil. According to the scripture, lawlessness has been at work since the fall, but it is the Holy Spirit who is restraining the full revelation of the Antichrist. We recently did Thessalonians as the men. We finished it. Finally. I was hoping the rapture would come before we finished it. But, <laughs> but in there it says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 to 8, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That is the Holy Spirit. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, let's look at how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers. But before we look at how he works in our lives today... I just want to go back to the Old Testament just to show you that the, old, the Holy Spirit was active in the lives of the men of God then as well. First, in Numbers 11.25, we read, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. So here we see that Moses had the Holy Spirit upon him. And for this occasion, it was even given to the elders to prophesy. In Exodus 31 verse 3, we see how the Holy Spirit was given to Belzalel to able to build the tabernacle. It reads, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. When we move on to Joshua, we see that he had the Holy Spirit upon him when he was to become the next leader of Israel after Moses. Numbers 27 verse 18 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. When we move through the judges, and we see how this Holy Spirit was upon certain judges during this challenging time of Israel. Just to name a few for you, Gideon had the Spirit upon him. We see this in 1 Judges 6 verse 34. 
But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him. In Judges 14, verse 6, we see the same of Samson, which reads, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. I don't know why that he didn't tell them. Maybe they were going to shout at him. I don't know. But uh, would anyone here like to be able to take on a line and rip it apart by the power of the Holy Spirit? I don't know if that's possible today. I think that was particular for Samson. I'll leave it to him. When we go to the kings of Israel, we see that the Holy Spirit was upon those chosen as kings. We look at Saul. We see in 1 Samuel 10 verse 10 how the Spirit came upon Saul. When the Spirit came, when they came here to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. We see in Samuel 6, 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 that the Holy Spirit was upon King David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David went on to speak of the Holy Spirit throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 143, verse 10, for example, we see David declare, Teach me to do your will, for you are God. Your Spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. We also see the Holy Spirit in the lives of the prophets. In Ezekiel 2, verse 2, we see the Spirit spoke to Ezekiel, where it says, Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. We also see Isaiah prophesy of the Holy Spirit being with Jesus. In Isaiah 11, 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, there are many other scriptures of the Spirit being present in the lives of the Old Testament saints, but I don't have enough time to cover them all because I'm not really going to be here for three hours. <laughs> when we come to see how the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of believers today, I want us to look first at how the Holy Spirit is involved in the salvation of a believer. We see in Titus 3, verse 5 to 6, how the Holy Spirit is responsible for the regeneration of a believer. It says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Once a believer has been renewed and reborn, what then is the relationship between us and the Holy Spirit? Well, according to Romans 8 verse 9, he dwells within us because it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we can see that the Holy Spirit is living within us is a clear sign that we have been saved. And as we see a few, verse, a few verses further in Romans 8 verse 14 to 15, we see that the Spirit of God allows us to be adopted into God's kingdom, and we can call him Abba Father. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba Father. Now, we have also been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know when I came to this area, there are 
different interpretations as to when a believer gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some believe it's a separate event to when you get saved. When Kevin was teaching a few weeks ago and he said about how to know the Bible, how to study the Bible, and he said, ultimately, there's only one interpretation that's correct. Now, I'm not here to tell you that my interpretation is correct. That's for you to decide. But my interpretation, personal interpretation from the scriptures that I've read is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at rebirth. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we see that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. We see this repeated again in Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6. It says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all. Now, another thing that happens at the rebirth of a believer is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. This, too, is not a separate event. This happens at salvation. According to Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, we read, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. You see, the whole idea of being sealed, it's a promise, a mark to show that the message was authentic, to show possession of the one who placed the seal, so the fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit shows that we belong to God, that as we've read in the scripture, it is to be our guarantee of our future inheritance. To know that nothing ever can separate us from the love of God. We read this being confirmed in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21 to 22. It says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also sealed us and has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, something to rem important to remember is that there is never a command in the Bible to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is never a command in the Bible to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And there is never a command in the Bible to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. All those things happen when we come to repentance. There's one other thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer at the time of redemption, and that is he sanctifies us. According to 1 Peter 1, 2, it says... Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there is one thing that we are commanded to do regarding the Holy Spirit, and that is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I think that sometimes this is where the confusion comes in regarding being baptized by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You see, we've already said that baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the time of rebirth. Whereas being filled with the Holy Spirit is a continuous thing that we are commanded to do. I want us to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 5. And I'm going to be reading from verse 18 down to 21. And it says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, when we read this passage, we might think that when Paul tells us not to be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, that he is talking about a social issue. Now, it is true that you may, before you got saved, have got drunk. I'm sure some of us did. I know I did. And now that I'm a Christian, I shouldn't get drunk, and I don't. But what Paul is referring to here is a theological issue. You see, the pagans at that time, they used to get so drunk with excess, that's what dissipation means, with excess, that they, because they believed it would lead to this higher level of religious consciousness with their gods. They got so drunk that they would lead to vomiting and then... They did this. They vomited so that they could drink more. <laughs> That's what it meant to get drunk here. Yeah. So instead of doing this, Paul is saying that God commands us instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a stark contrast between drunken, fleshly worship of pagan systems and the beautiful worship of the true God by being filled with the Spirit. Can you see that? If we look at Luke 1, verse 15, we see a similar contrast with John the Baptist. It says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You see, John the Baptist, he would not be influenced by the effect of alcohol like the pagans, but he would have the Holy Spirit filling him and transforming his mind. We see a similar contrast in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, where the, the disciples, being filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with other languages. It says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Further on in that chapter, in verses 9 to 11, it actually mentions the different languages that they were speaking in to the people around them, ones that they'd never learned before. And in verse 13 of that same chapter, some mocked them and thought they were drunk on new wine, just like the Gentiles or the pagans would be. Now, when Paul wrote these verses in Ephesians, he probably was thinking back to that event at Pentecost. 
And we see the contrast then between being drunk in wine, in stupidness, in excess, to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we look at Ephesians 5, verse 18, and it says, do not be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, this is a command. Yeah? The Greek phrase for be filled is plerao, which means to make full, to cause to abound, to complete. In the Greek language, it is also an indicative mood, which is a statement of fact, a command that God gives to believers. It is not a suggestion. In fact, God rarely, if ever, gives suggestions, but he makes commands and states facts. Now, interestingly today, there are some opinions in the church that a, a Christian can be a Christian and maybe not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. Almost maybe like a, a carnal Christian. Now, about two years ago, I did look it up, Kevin took us through the book of 1 Corinthians. Can you remember that? Yeah. And Paul, when he spoke to the church, he called them carnal. We read this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2 to 3. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you will not be able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You see, Paul was talking to believers here who were walking according to the carnal flesh instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, a true Christian at the time of rebirth will have the Holy Spirit living within him. We've already read in Romans 8 verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So to be a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in his fullness. But we know from Scripture that at times we battle the flesh. And at times we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But if we go back to the church in Corinth, and we even see what Paul says to them in chapter 6, verse 18 to 20. He says, flee sexual immorality, every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You see, Paul again was talking to believing Christians who had the Holy Spirit of God living inside them and yet they were committing sexual immorality. Now, you might think, is it okay then to be a Christian and to be carnal like is written here? Surely not, you know? John MacArthur quotes the following. There can be Christians who act carnally but carnality is mostly characteristic of unbelieving people. They, they are at enmity against God. They are not subject to the law of God. They cannot be subject to the law of God. They cannot please God. You see, you could say, okay, well, maybe I'll be all right in that category with Corinthians. But the majority of times, if you're carnal, you're probably not saved and not with God. 
But now going back to being filled with the Holy Spirit, how does that affect us as believers? If we are filled, complete and overflowing with the Holy Spirit, then we will be led by the Spirit. We see this example in Luke 4 verse 1. When Jesus was led into the wilderness, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If we look at the same account in Mark's Gospel, we see that Jesus was actually thrust into the wilderness. It says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So we see here that being filled by the Spirit means that we are led by the Spirit, but it also means we are controlled by the Spirit. And if we are filled with the Spirit, that means that we will walk with the Spirit. And you know what scripture I'm going to quote now, okay? I tried to get this trademark, but apparently it belongs to God. So Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. At the beginning of the year, I, I taught on the battle within. And I said there are three things that you can do to help you walk in the Spirit. Number one, seek the Lord with all your heart. Number two, submit to God with everything that you have and who you are. And number three, serve the Lord and serve others. Let me tell you, if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, then all of these things that I mentioned will be done in your own strength and they will fail. So, how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it a spiritual experience, a zap from above? Does it, does it involve the laying on of hands to be anointed by someone? Does it involve being slain by the Spirit? I would say no to all of these things. Although, I would just mention, there is nothing wrong with elders or pastors laying hands on you and praying for you. That is a good thing. I believe, though, the filling of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians leads to certain things. In verse 19, we see that you will speak in spiritual songs and psalms and melody to the Lord. In verse 20, we see that we will give thanks to the Lord always for all things. In verse 21, we will submit to one another. In verse 22, wives submit to their husbands. In verse 25 of, it, of Ephesians, it says, Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. Moving on into chapter 6, in verse 1, children will obey their parents. In verse 4, fathers will not provoke children to wrath. And in verse 5, servants will be obedient. And in verse 9, masters will treat their servants right. These are all results of being filled with the Spirit. Love to the Lord and to one another and righteous everyday living. Now, I want us to turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is just, uh, if you're in Ephesians, it's like two books over. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And in Colossians 3, I'm going to be reading from verse 16 down to uh, 22. So it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Can you see the similar similarity here between these two chapters, between these two books? It shows the same results as we read in Ephesians. Singing spiritual songs to one another in the Lord, giving thanks to the Father in all things, Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their fathers, fathers not provoking their children, and servants obeying their masters. Now, in Ephesians, we read that those results are results of being filled of the Holy Spirit. But what is the cause of these same things here in Colossians? Well, in verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So I believe that being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as what? Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So in Ephesians 6, we read of the armor of God. We read that in, in Ephesians 6, in verse 17. What does it say? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the word of God. To walk in the Spirit is to walk in the Word of Christ richly in all wisdom. Now, finally, one other thing that happens when we are filled with the Spirit is that we are filled with power. Yeah? Power to do what? Well, power to witness to others. Acts 1 verse 8 says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We also read in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 regarding sharing the gospel, Paul writes, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, some of you may have recently watched the film The Jesus Revolution, and for those of you who haven't, it's a story of God's redemption upon a lost bunch of hippies in the 70s. And it's also a bit of a story about Calvary Chapel. And the one thing that really stood out to me in that film was that when Pastor Chuck was preaching the word of God, amazing things happened. People came to repentance and got baptized. <laughs> you see, true revival and the power of the Holy Spirit is repentance and salvation that comes only through the word of god being filled with the spirit also allows us to have another thing the fruit of the spirit which is mentioned in galatians 5 verse 22 to 23 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such there is no law now another power that we have when we are filled with the holy spirit is the power to overcome our enemies recently at teach the word conference we heard from pastor jack pastor steve pastor thomas and even our own pastor kevin 
on the subject of spiritual warfare and how the enemy, which is Satan, the world, and the flesh, are all coming against us, constantly trying to destroy us. But through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to overcome these enemies, not by our own strength, but by the power and the might of the Holy Spirit. In closing, I want to quote something from John MacArthur. He says the following, To be filled with the Spirit is to live in the consciousness of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, as if we were standing next to him, and to let his mind dominate our life. It is to fill ourselves with God's word, so that his thoughts will be our thoughts, his standards our standards, his work our work, and his will our will. Christ's consciousness leads to Christ's likeness. And when I read that, and I've been going through this, the Lord really spoke to me, and it got me thinking much about my own walk and life with God. And I heard a question asked by a pastor, and I'm going to ask you the same question to myself and to you, not in judgment, but in conviction. How many of us here desire to be in the presence of God forever? We all want that, don't we? Yeah? How many of us here, though, struggle to spend an hour a day in his word or in prayer, knowing that the same spirit and power that rose Jesus from the grave, God himself lives in us? I just want us to think on that, you know, going forward, knowing that God himself, think about that, lives within you. We want to be in his presence always. He's already living in us for those who believe. So let us take the time to read God's word, to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can overcome. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this word. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live within us and it is through your power that we are able to overcome we thank you Holy Spirit that it is through your power that we have new lives that we have been resurrected from our sin that we have been given this chance of redemption so I pray Father that we would just as a body of Christ just focus on your word that we would continuously be filled with your Holy Spirit through the word, that we would never walk away from these things, that we would trust in you always, knowing that you have given us that power that lives within us to overcome our flesh, the, the world, the enemy. And we thank you, Father, that we can just do all these things because you love us so much. We thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.